Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Good morning and welcome this morning to Crosspoint. So glad you could be with us today, especially for those of you who are new and and those who are joining us uh, online as well. Uh, We're in a teaching series, and the teaching series, we're walking through the book of Philippians, and it's called With Joy from Prison. So this morning, if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to pick things up. Uh, If you're here this morning, you're like, I don't have a Bible, but boy, it'd be sure good to have a Bible uh, in in your hands. Micah is there at the back. Just kind of put up your hand, and he would hand you a Bible, and uh, you can... uh, Look through that this morning if you want a paper hard copy this morning. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that Bible home with you. That is our gift to you. We're so glad to be able to just put a, put a Bible into your hands this morning. So Philippians uh, chapter 3. And, and you know what? If you're new to faith or you're new to the Bible, uh, where do you find Philippians? You might be wondering that. You can flip open the, the front, get to the table of contents, go into the New Testament, not the Old Testament, the New Testament, go about 11 books down, you see the book of Philippians there, and follow the page number, and away we go. And you can get to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, this morning. Hey, um, I want to begin this morning with a bit of a provocative idea, just to kind of stir our thinking. And here's the idea. I believe that we live in a culture full of performers. So I'm a performer, you're a performer, you are surrounded all around you with a cloud of performers this morning. And this should not be surprising, particularly for those of us who live in the western part of the world. Because that's how we survive. As a matter of fact, that's how we get ahead in the world. It's by performing. So from an early age, we're taught that we need to perform well in school if we're going to get ahead, right? Uh, this applies to a lot of other different things. Um, for example, if you want to excel at sports, you need, need to outperform the competition, right? If you want to excel in the arts or any other thing, you, it's all about your performance. Uh, you cannot pass a driver's test without performing Well, you have to get to a certain level of performance. Uh, Many of your jobs, places where you work, have these things called performance appraisals, right? So some of you, even today, you might even feel like that you are in a relationship where you are required to perform. You're in a relationship where every day it kind of feels like a bit of a performance appraisal. Now, that's not necessarily a healthy relationship, but you do feel like you have to perform just to keep this relationship afloat. We're surrounded by this need to perform. We drink it in like mother's milk from the day we're born in Western culture. So it is no wonder that performance kind of comes natural to us. We're natural performers. Now, I'll let you in on a little bit of a secret. I'm, I'm a bit of a performance junkie. I'm one of those guys who, you know, reads a lot of those books about how to get better and become better and do better. I mean, I do arm curls, crash dumbbells at the gym while listening to motivational podcasts. I read a lot of leadership books. I'm, I'm a bit of a performance junkie just by nature. Uh, there's actually this book that you can get. It's called Strengths Finder. I don't know if any of you have ever read Strengths Finder, but you read it and it kind of walks through all these different strengths. And at the back of it, there's this online assessment you can do. So you do the online assessment and they get back to you and they tell you what your top strengths are. Uh, the book's used in a lot of different contexts in businesses, companies, etc., just to help people know what their strengths are and, and you know, lead according to their strengths. So anyway, I've done the Strengths Finder assessment uh, before. And uh, let me tell you what the strengths three, four, and five are for me. 
Okay, I won't tell you one and two yet, but three, four, and five. So number three, strategic. Number four, activator. Number five, maximizer. Okay, and these terms might not mean a whole lot to you, but if you work closely with me, uh, you, these should not surprise you about my personality. Okay, um, but let me tell you what my second strength is. Achiever. Achiever. So it's all about the win. It's all about accomplishment. I'm an achiever kind of a personality. Let me tell you what my first one is. And it's kind of embarrassing. Okay. And I didn't know that this was a strength. My number one strength, according to the strengths finder assessment is competition. So, you know, you think about that, you, 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 you mix a high achiever with a competitive personality and everything is a game. And the way that I excel is by actually having strong people beside me who can push me and I can compete against because I'm going to win, by the way. And by the way, second place is the first loser. So um, that's my personality. Now, I'd like to say I have the spiritual gift of competition, right? Um, But I believe that every single human being is uniquely made by God. We all have different personalities. We all have distinct ways that we uh, behave in different contexts, right? But God can redeem our personalities, and use it for his good, no matter what your personality is. But I've been in a competition since the day I was born. But here's the thing. There is a shadow side to my personality. And I wonder this morning if you can identify with me. Sometimes I find within me this rather broken tendency to need to perform before God in order to win his approval. People call this, what's called, it's called performance-based righteousness. In other words, there's this tendency within me to try to earn God's favor through my own strength and through my own efforts. I wonder this morning, have you ever had that in your own life? Have you ever felt this performance-based righteousness? Well, this need to perform, as it turns out, goes all the way back to the beginning. They actually go all, all the way back to the garden in the day when humanity first turned their backs on God. So when our, our, our ancestors disobeyed God, they ate the forbidden fruit, something broke inside of them. Something changed and got twisted. And their eyes were opened up to good and evil. And, and they knew somehow that they, they betrayed God. They turned their backs on God. So what did they do? What's the first thing they do? Well, they ran for the bushes. And what's the second thing they did? They covered themselves up in an effort to somehow cover their mistakes, and and cover themselves from God. What were they doing? Well, they were performing. They They were trying to find a way in their own strengths, in their own efforts, to deal with the problem. And the problem was their separation from God. So, so this, this tendency to perform before God is, is, is actually something that each and every single one of us faces, and we will face. So it's not just those of us with a spiritual gift of competition, but rather it's hardwired into every human being. It's hardwired into our broken souls. But the problem is, is that all of our attempts to, to impress God will never be enough. Not in a million lifetimes will it ever be enough. And the good news is, it never has to be. Which brings us to today's message in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. We're continuing in, in, in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And he's addressing this very problem of what we would call performance-based righteousness. So I invite you this morning to go with me into the text in chapter, one, chapter 3 and verse 1. I'll read and you can follow along. Here's what Paul says. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, so Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1 is kind of a turning point in Paul's letter. He, he's, he's moving on from previous topics, although they're, they're, it's kind of a continuation. And he's, he's kind of turning the page and he's starting something new here. And he begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord, which is a great place to start. And, and you'll discover as we get through it all that he's going to give us reasons why he says we should re- rejoice in the Lord and, of course, not in ourselves. So right away, you, you probably picked this up in the letter that Paul seems to be concerned about the church's safety. And so he's trying to remind them of something that they already knew, just in case they needed to hear it again. So it's like antifreeze or it's like airbags, right? You're happy to have them just in case you need them. And what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to protect the church from a group of people who many people would call the Judaizers. Well, who were the Judaizers? Let me, let me explain them to you. Essentially, the Judaizers were followers of Jesus the Messiah, who still continued to follow the Torah or live under the Torah, which was the Jewish law. So the law of Moses. So they were followers of Jesus, but they were still continuing in Judaism. But more than that, they were actually insisting that all followers of Jesus needed to continue living under the law, especially new Gentile believers. Now, this was a little bit problematic for Gentiles because if you were to begin living under the law, the first requirement, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Okay, so imagine that you're an adult Gentile. You're a follower of Jesus. And then the Judaizer said, it's great that you're following Jesus. By the way, didn't you get the memo? You also need to get circumcised. Now, if you don't know what circumcised is, like last week, I encourage you to talk to our, our youth or children's staff. They'd be happy to explain that to you. Okay, so take the time to do that. I'm sure that they'll be able to explain it to you. I won't have time this morning. But the starting point of Torah obedience for a Gentile was circumcision. Adult circumcision. No freezing, no antiseptic circumcision, right? I can't imagine that this was a very effective church growth strategy, all right? So for the Judaizers, they believed Jesus was the Messiah, but Jesus wasn't enough. They believed in a Jesus plus gospel. So to to be in right relationship with God, you needed Jesus plus the law. They were Jesus plus kind of believers. So Paul is, is preparing the church to face these Judaizers just in case they come to town. And they very likely would have come to town because it happened to Paul all the time. He would go into a city, he would plant a church, he would preach the gospel, and not long after, Judaizers would find their way into the community and say, oh, by the way, didn't you get the memo? You also need to obey the law to be a follower of Jesus. So they were dogging Paul throughout the years, throughout all of his ministries. And I mean, if you read Galatians, I mean, he said some really sharp words to say about them there. But here, Paul, you've got to think of it. Paul is at the end of his journey. He could die, right? He's got nothing to lose. And so he's like, all right, the gloves come off, right? I'm kind of fed up with them. I'm ready to kick butt and take names. Here we go. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I actually think about the Judaizers. Here's what he says. He says, first of all, he calls them dogs, which in that day was a huge insult. 
I mean, nobody liked dogs in that day. Not the Grecos, not the Greeks, not the Romans, not the Jews. None of them liked dogs. You would never find anybody carrying a little doggy in a purse. You would never see somebody following along behind a dog with a plastic bag. It just didn't happen. As a matter of fact, the Jews thought that dogs were unclean animals. They called Gentiles dogs. So this was a huge insult. But then Paul calls them those who do evil, which would have been actually a little bit of a slap in the face because the Judaizers prided themselves in, in being faithful, in being righteous, in being good. Um, but Paul is essentially saying, well, you know what? The good that you're trying to do at the end of the day is actually causing evil. And then he says, they are those who mutilate the flesh. And this, of course, was a jab to their insistence on circumcision. Uh, the Greek word here actually literally means to cut to pieces. That's what the word mutilate means. So basically he says, you know what? You're not helping. You're just making a mess of things. And then Paul gives this really interesting reason for why they should look out for the Judaizers. You notice what he says? He says, we are the circumcision. What does he mean by that? Essentially, what he means is, is that through Jesus, there is a new circumcision. So it's not like the old circumcision, the old circumcision, which was under the law, which has to do with the cutting of the flesh. Instead, it's, it's, it's a new circumcision that has been inaugurated. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he instituted a new covenant in his blood. And so that means that the old covenant, which, which was including the law, was ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. So you no longer needed to live under the old covenant because now there was a new covenant in Jesus' blood. And in the new covenant, the circumcision that Jesus requires of us is not a physical circumcision. Rather, it is a spiritual circumcision. It's what Paul calls in Romans chapter 2, a circumcision of the heart. So this is where you, you turn your heart from sin and towards Christ, where you receive his grace into your life, his love and his mercy. And then you begin to walk with him in full surrender, in glad delight for all that Christ has done for you. So this is what this new circumcision looks like. And Paul's saying, listen, we're not, we're not part of that circumcision. No, that's not, that's not the true circumcision anymore. We are the circumcision, not the Judaizers. But then Paul also points out that the problem with the Judaizers is that they put their confidence in the flesh. And of course, there's a little bit of a double meaning here. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, he's actually referring to actual circumcision, which was confidence in the flesh, right? The, the flesh of circumcision. But on the other hand, Paul is talking about the human condition. It's that part of us that I talked about a little bit earlier on. That part of us that relies on performance-based righteousness. See, the flesh, my flesh, it's all about my ability. It's all about my efforts. It's all about my works. And when the confidence is in my flesh, we falsely think that we can actually gain right standing with God through our own efforts. The thing about the flesh is the flesh achieves, the flesh earns, the flesh performs, and at the end of the day, the flesh boasts. So the Judaizers, they were, they were confident in their flesh. They, they excelled at performance-based righteousness. They were a Jesus-plus kind of people. So the question then is, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with putting confidence in your own efforts and in your own flesh? Well, Paul talks about that. Let's keep reading. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
As to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So what Paul's doing here is he's actually demonstrating how, how ridiculous it is to put your confidence in your flesh. He's saying, listen, if you think you got reasons to be confident in the flesh, stop the presses. I'm going to tell you why I got all the more reasons to be confident in the flesh. Okay, so he just starts talking about his pedigree. He starts talking about his spiritual resume, and he starts walking through it one step at a time. And first of all, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, why is that significant? Well, the law required that every good Jew be circumcised on the eighth day. Second, he says, I'm of the people of Israel. In other words, he's saying, you know, I'm a pure blood. I'm not a half breed. I'm not a Gentile. I'm a true Israelite. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Which means that I've been completely true to my ancestry. My ethnicity isn't just skin deep. Yeah, I was born in Tarsus. But since the day I was born, I've been a true-blooded Hebrew of Hebrews. Yeah, some people in my city, they will read the, the Old Testament in Greek. Me, I read it actually in Hebrew. He's legit. Fourth, he says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. This was a favorite tribe. You know, the first King Saul came from Benjamin. The holy city of Jerusalem was within the borders of Benjamin. There was only one tribe that supported Judah when the divided kingdom happened. Who was that? That was Benjamin. So that was Paul's tribe. That's where he grew, who he grew up in. There's a bit of a ring of pride here about this. And fifth, he says this. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Well, who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were the most devout and the most powerful religious group in all of Israel. They were known for their strict interpretation and obedience to the law. And interestingly enough, Paul, I mean, he wasn't just any um, Pharisee. He actually studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most significant rabbi scholars of his day. Paul was one of his direct students. And then Paul says this. He says, as to zeal, persecuting the church. Okay? So, I mean, it wasn't just he was committed. I mean, Paul took his commitment to another level. Paul was an activist. Paul was radicalized. He would drag followers of Jesus into the streets. He would have them beaten. He would have them disenfranchised for their beliefs. So, he, I mean, he took it up another level. And then he says, finally, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So, Paul's saying, I, I lived up to the law as far as the external requirements go. He had an outwardly perfect record. Nobody could say to Paul, oh, I see that part of your life, and I see that you're failing in the law. He would say, no, absolutely perfect track record. Now, Paul's not saying he was sinless. I mean, here he's talking about uh, externals, about keeping the rules. As a matter of fact, if you read other of Paul's letters, uh, it's pretty clear that his inner private world was still pretty broken, was pretty sinful. Uh, he was far from perfect. He struggled. But as far as just keeping the rules, the outward veneer, the appearances, Paul was a rock star. And so the question Paul's saying, I mean, he's speaking really through this letter to the Judaizers. He says, listen, is there, if there's anybody, absolutely anybody on the planet who should have confidence in the flesh, it's me. I'm the one. So how about you this morning? What's your source of confidence in your spiritual standing? Is there anything that, that, that you're leaning into? You say, yeah, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of a big deal spiritually. You should see my spiritual resume. You know, maybe, maybe you're here and I'm like, I'm like a third generation Christian, you know, family of Christians, generations. Maybe you're here and you've, you've gone to Bible college or maybe you're going to Bible college 
Maybe you've supported hundreds of compassion kids. Maybe you, you went and you served on a mission trip, or even riskier, you served in the toddler's room downstairs, okay? <laughs> Maybe you're a Bible trivia prodigy, or, or, or you've been tithing for 10 years straight, or, or you've had an entire week of successful, quiet times, right? Or you have 16 spiritual gifts, and to top it all off, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't run with girls that do, okay? You have a stellar religious lifestyle, all right? Now, I don't know what your spiritual resume is. I don't know what your spiritual pedigree is. But I have to ask you, do you believe that your performance earns you a better standing with God? Well, let's look at what Paul says about his spiritual resume. Let's keep reading. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible. I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what did Paul think. About his stellar spiritual resume. He says it was loss. It didn't actually gain him everything. All that fleshly confidence got him nowhere. And part of this is because when Paul was there back in the day, he didn't fully understand what true gain was. It wasn't until actually God got his attention that Paul came to understand that true gain is in knowing Christ. And you, if you want to read about that, you can read about that in Acts chapter 9 uh, sometime this week. True gain is in knowing Christ. And in fact, Paul would say, you know, it's of surpassing worth. So it, he's saying it's literally priceless. It's not something you can put a price tag on. I mean, it's worth more, all, more than all the money in Bill Gates' expense account. It's worth more than all the diamonds in Africa. Worth more than all the oil in the Middle East. It's greater than a million followers on Instagram. It's worth more than a thousand trips around the world. Nothing compares to the surpassing greatness, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, there's nothing greater than that. He says, in fact, that compared to knowing Christ, everything is a loss. He even says that in comparison, if he was to compare everything that you could possibly do, every person you could possibly know, everything you could possibly have, he said, if I was to compare that to knowing Jesus, everything else would seem like rubbish. Now, our, our English translations are very polite, okay? The actual word there for rubbish is excrement, dung, poop, doggy doo. And he's saying there, there is nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. It all pales in comparison. Like, like comparing a candle to the sun. Like comparing a, 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 a teaspoon of water to Lake Superior. It just doesn't even measure. It's off the charts. And you know what, what's fascinating about all this? What, what, the implication of this for us is just simply this. Is that Christ is knowable. Jesus is knowable. You can know him. He's a person. If you're in relationship with him, you, you can speak to him. 
You can learn to hear his voice. You can walk with him throughout your life. So this is more than just knowing about Jesus. He's talking about knowing Jesus personally. It's experiential. And you know, if you read later on in, in, in these verses, Paul says that um, this, this knowing also meant identifying completely with Jesus. He says, I, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So he's saying, you know what? I want to become like Jesus in every way. Because if I, the more I become like Jesus in every way, the more I'll fully understand who Jesus is. I'll identify him, with him. So he would know him in a deeper and more profound way. So living like Christ in the power of the Spirit. Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit. The more Paul walks in the power of the Spirit, he will know Jesus in the power of the resurrection. The more that Paul enters into sufferings, the more he'll begin to understand and know Jesus in a very personal way. So Paul is saying, I glory in these things. I want to know Christ because it's better by far. Nothing compares to it. And, and the big point Paul is making is this. You cannot come to know Christ through your own performance. Because the problem with your performance is that you will, at the end of the day, never measure up. This is what Paul discovered through the law. You know, Paul, Paul agreed the law was good. He thought it was a gift of God given to his people. But the law in and of itself cannot produce righteousness. All the law is capable of doing is exposing bad behavior. It showed you where you didn't measure up at the end of the day. And most of us know this to be true. I've never walked by a wet paint sign where I needed to figure out whether or not it was true or not, right? It's this tendency within us when there's a rule to try and break the rule. And so God sent Jesus into the world. Jesus was the, was the only one who kept the law perfectly. He lived a sinless life in obedience to the Father. So that when he died on the cross, he could be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. The spotless lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. And Jesus did for us what the law could never do for us. And so that's why in verse 9, Paul says this. He says that he wants to be found in him. In who? In Jesus. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, we can never be in right standing through our works. Performance-based righteousness will only lead us to failure time and time again. And so the only way to know God is ultimately through faith. It's faith in the completed work of Jesus on your behalf. Faith that Jesus' life and death were enough that you don't need to add anything. The only thing you can add to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And so I'm wondering today... Do you know Christ? Perhaps today is the day for you to begin. Maybe today you could just begin by admitting your need for God. Admitting your need for forgiveness, for a new beginning. Maybe today is the day where you, where you could turn away from, from this life and this way of living that's killing you. And you could turn towards the one who loves you and who's promising you new life. Maybe today's the day you seek his forgiveness and you receive Christ into your life as the Lord of your life. To trust him completely and say, Jesus, I, I cannot save myself. Would you please just rescue me? Would you save me? And I tell you this, if you do that, God's promises, he'll forgive your sins. He will wipe the slate clean. He will make you righteous. And you can enter into a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ, the king of the universe. So maybe for today, today is your day. 
Maybe this is the day you put your faith and your trust completely in Christ to save you. You know, several years ago, our, our family's uh, hamster went missing. Um, our little hamster, little guy's name was Chomper. And the girls kind of took it out of its cage. They were just little back then. And then they were letting it run around the house and, and playing. And um, they were playing with it in the dining room. And the thing about our dining room is it was always in this perpetual state of construction. So the, the vents weren't covered in the dining room. Okay, so he, one day, like one minute he was there and one minute he disappeared. So I assumed, okay, he went down into the vents, right? Because like if I was a, a rat, I would do that. I totally go down into the vents, right? So, I mean, he disappeared. He didn't come back out. The girls were heartbroken. But I says, you know what? Don't worry about it, kids. You know, just, this is Chomper, right? If he's hungry, he'll come back. He's definitely going to come back. So we waited for several days and it turns out Chomper didn't come back. Um, I mean, I was looking for him. I was looking behind the furniture for little, you know, hamster droppings. And I was listening at the vents, see if I could hear him scurrying around in the tin, right? But no signs of Chomper. So after a week, I, I just figured he hooked up with a mouse and decided to start a new life in our backyard somewhere, right? Um, but I, I couldn't get him out of my head. I was like, where, where is this rat? Like, where is he? So after a couple of weeks, I had a little bit of an epiphany. And I realized that the vent that he likely went into was, in fact, a cold air exchange vent. Which means that it likely went straight down, dropped into the basement. And when I figured it out, I thought, actually, it's right above the furnace room. So there's a good chance that he went straight down, actually, into the furnace itself, right? <laughs> well, there was no smell of deep fried chompers. So I figured, okay, well, maybe he's doing all right. So I thought to myself... Maybe he's in the furnace. So I got on my flashlight and went down into the deep dark of the basement. Walked through that furnace room to the very back where he was. And I pulled the front off of the furnace. And I shined in there with my flashlight. And it was like dirty and dusty and gross in the furnace. Because I'm one of those guys who changes his furnace filter never. So, uh, and then at the back there, I saw these two little beady eyes. I want you to know what? Chomper came crawling out really, really slowly. His, his fur was all matted and he was dirty and he was emaciated, skin and bones and dust bunnies clinging to him everywhere, right? But he recognized us and we took him upstairs and we gave him a little bit of water and, and we nursed him back to health and eventually Chomper recovered. Yay! And there was great... Yes. Here's the thing. And Chomper fell into a pit he had no way of getting out. And there were slick metal walls. He couldn't climb out of there. He was completely powerless to save himself. The only way he could escape was with the help of a rescuer. There was nothing Chomper could do to add to his salvation. I mean, did, did he think that if he just ran around in circles inside of the furnace that he was going to get out there any quicker? Doing spiritual jumping jacks inside? Right? Circumcision? That wasn't going to help him. Listen, the Bible says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. That apart from Jesus Christ, we are enemies of God. We are separated. We are lost. We are without hope and without God in this world. Trapped in a furnace with no way out. And performance-based righteousness will not save us. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is the truth of the gospel. 
Now, you might be here today, and you might say, oh, you know, that's great, Rob. Thank you for sharing. Um, but none of this really applies to me. I mean, I've been a follower of Jesus my whole life. I know this stuff. I got it down in spades. And you might think that everything I've just shared right now is rather elementary, and that somehow you have outgrown all of this. You've moved beyond. I just want to point out something out to you from the text, and I want you to look at verse 8. You notice Paul says that I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. I count. Do you know that that's in the present tense? Do you know in verse 7 he speaks in the past tense? He says, I counted. So he looks at his former way of life and he says, I look back at all of that. I counted it as a loss. That performance-based righteousness, it's a loss. It's not a gain. But then he says in verse 8, but guess what? I'm still counting. I count today, present tense, ongoing continuous action. In other words, he is considering everything he's doing now as lost. He is still trusting completely in the finished work of Jesus, even though he's been following Jesus for decades, which he has been. Here's the thing. You never graduate from the gospel. And some people that believe that the gospel is for those who are just coming to faith in Jesus, or maybe somebody who's a new believer in Jesus, right? But not for mature Christians. And they falsely think that the gospel is something that gets us in, but after you're in, the thing that keeps us in is our own performance. And so they begin under the gospel, and then they continue as Jesus plus kind of people. You never graduate from the gospel. And Timothy Keller would say this. He says, the gospel isn't just the ABCs of your faith. The gospel is the A to Z of your Christian faith. It, only ignites, it, it not only ignites the Christian life, it's the fuel that keeps us going in our faith every single day. And you know what? There's a real downside, a real downside in trying to live under the Jesus plus gospel. Let me just quickly give you three very potential problems with living as a Jesus plus performance-based righteousness kind of person. Here's the first one. The first problem is it can lead to spiritual pride. See, the problem with performance-based religion is that when I succeed, then I get the glory. And Jesus doesn't get the glory. And this can be, lead to a real like, hey, look at me, kind of spiritual pride. And it can also uh, sometimes lead to a sense of spiritual entitlement. You know, God, look what I've done. Shouldn't you, in fact, bless me because of all that I have done in my own strength, in my own energy? But on the other hand, it can also lead to spiritual insecurity. You see, when knowing Christ depends on my performance, then my spiritual journey will feel like a roller coaster that rises and falls with my successes and with my failures. So until I can get my spiritual life back in order, I'm in trouble, right? So we're like Adam and Eve. We're playing hide and seek with God in, in, the, in the bushes for days until we can get things figured out. And then we can come out of the bush and say, okay, I'm doing okay now. Oh, it's, oh, I, oh I failed. Back into the bushes we go. When I'm doing well, I'm doing really well. I'm doing poorly. I'm doing really poorly. And let me tell you, this is a miserable way to live your Christian life. It can lead to spiritual frustration, anxiety, self-hatred, and depression. It is hard to grow in the love of Christ when you are always unsure about what he thinks about you. The final problem is spiritual competition. This is where we, we measure our righteousness, our right standing with God, based on what others are doing, right? Well, I'm not so bad as Susie. I mean, she's a gossip, right? Or, well, I'm way better than Joel. I mean, he's an axe murderer. At least I'm not doing that, right? And the problem with, with spiritual competition is it actually gives us a sense of false confidence because we've chosen the wrong standard for excellence. 
When people become our standard for excellence, it's really easy to find the people who are really failing and use them as our standard so we can feel really good about ourselves. But there's a million mile difference between human standards and the standard of a holy, perfect, righteous, good, and loving God. When he's the standard of holiness, we always discover very quickly that we never measure up. We cannot measure up. The thing about spiritual competition is it will inevitably lead to a real breakdown in relationships. Some of you have been in church a long time. You know this. Spiritual competition creates insiders and outsiders. It creates one-uppers and put-downers. That's spiritual competition. So, so, so these, are the, the, these are the downsides of living under a Jesus plus gospel. And so when you start to add to Jesus, you are no longer growing in Christ. You are growing in lifeless religion, moralistic self-righteousness, and spiritual pride. And it can feel really good, and it is deceptively counterfeit. And this is the kind of thing that blows churches up and tears them apart. According to the gospel, Jesus' death has paid for every ounce of your sin. His perfect life has now been credited to you. Christ's obedience is so spectacular. There is nothing we could do to add to it. His death is so final that nothing can take away from it. All you need to do is to receive it, to rest in it, and to live under it. And allow it to fuel your love and your obedience and your followership in Christ Jesus. And so today, cross point, Jesus knows you. He wants you to know him. And he invites you into this life-giving relationship with him. And the way you get into that relationship and the way that you live in that relationship is through faith in the final and complete work of Jesus. With no additives, with no preservatives, Jesus invites you today to throw off your self-salvation strategy. He invites you today to repent of performance-based righteousness. And he invites you today to come and to rest in him and in him alone. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything. Now, our practice at the end of every gathering is to give you a chance to pray. I think this is a great moment to just do that. To communicate to our king of our universe gratitude for all that he's done. To turn away from these deceptive lies that are killing our faith and to step into what it is that he truly has for us. So we're going to give you a chance in response to prayer for just a couple minutes where you're at to talk to God. You know, he's here, he's near, he's for you, and he welcomes you to speak with him. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes to do that. And we're just going to do that in community. And then afterwards, I'm going to come back up and uh, I'm just going to close this in prayer. Maybe you're here today, though, and you actually need prayer. Maybe you're here today and you've been scurrying for the bushes or you've been living under a cloud of just self-defeat, a cloud of um, false righteousness, whatever that might be. And you just need someone to pray for you, to come alongside. 
I want to invite you um, to join with us down at the front here after the gathering this morning and, and just come for prayer. Come for prayer. We all need it. Listen, I've been under that cloud enough times in my Christian journey to know that I'm not alone in this. Maybe you need that this morning. I'll give you a couple minutes, though, this morning to pray. Then I'm going to come back up and, and I'll close this. Let's talk to our Father who loves us. Read on, but your heart was tired. You do words and felt the fire. Lay it all down. Lay it all down. Would you pray with me? With Father, thank you that you were for us. Thank you that you initiated relationship with the world. We didn't have to convince you, you turned your face towards us. And God, you're still turning your face towards us even today. I thank you that you want us to be in a life-giving relationship with you. So Lord, we repent and we turn from our, our broken ways, our false truths, our performance, self-salvation strategies. We turn towards you and we say thank you. Thank you. That in, through Christ Jesus, we are enough. That he is done for us that we could never do for ourselves. We thank you. We worship you. And God, for anyone today who's struggling with that, I pray for a release. I pray for freedom in their hearts and their minds to receive this truth. Thank you that he who sent the sun sets free is free indeed. We thank you and we praise you now and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Those of you new uh, today, we have Converged. I'd love to have you for dinner. We would love to have you for dinner and have you join us there uh, at Converged. So please join us afterwards for a bit of a sit-down meal. If you need prayer this morning, join with us over here. Maybe you just came with somebody and you know they need prayer or you, you need prayer. Just talk to the person beside you and say, would you pray for me? I really need prayer this morning. Let me remind you of who you are. You're the people of God. You're called by God into his redemptive mission in the world 
So be who you are. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.